What we're doing over the summer is going through the life of Jesus, and it's a series creatively called The Life. And as we go through the life of Jesus, a couple weeks ago, we started with his baptism, the beginning of his ministry. Last week, we talked about the temptation going from really the, the refreshment of the baptism into the harshness of the desert to be tempted, where he emerges victoriously, defeating the enemy. And now he is calling his disciples, and we certainly know about the 12 disciples. Today, we're going to talk about in Luke chapter 5, the calling of the disciples, the calling of the disciples, the community of the disciples, and the cause of the disciples. So take a look. Galilee, a remote and unassuming region of Judea, populated by remote and unassuming farmers, tradesmen, and fishermen. The people of Galilee believe God gave them the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, to guide them towards prosperity through obedience to God. But it simply wasn't working. Despite their deeply held belief and strict religious obedience, they were a conquered people. They had been oppressed for centuries, poor and seemingly forgotten by God. Then Jesus approaches, disrupting the familiar rhythm of a mundane workday. Jesus speaks to them not as one of the many celebrity teachers in the region whom the elite seek to follow, but as one having the authority of God who asks even the most common of people to follow him. Jesus first approaches Peter, James, and John, three young men of no particular stature or influence, and makes this profound invitation. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Jesus, the Son of God, the great prophetic voice of God, the healer, the miracle worker, the one thousands of people are flocking to, gives three ordinary people an extraordinary invitation. Follow me. How could this be? Why would they receive such an honor? They did nothing to deserve this high calling. He first calls them to a community, a community of grace and truth and service to others, a community that understands God is a father of love who calls us to live in the enjoyment of being loved and the joy of loving everyone, everywhere. Then he calls them to grow this community into a vast kingdom a global kingdom driven not by power or politics, driven not by wealth or war, but a global kingdom driven by humble service for the greater good of all humankind. Advancing a new kingdom where love is the only law. He calls them to keep fishing, not for their own good, to cast nets of influence that capture the hearts and minds of all of the world, inviting everyone everywhere to follow Jesus, to join a community of grace, to build a global kingdom, to transform this broken world into nothing less than heaven on earth. Follow me. Try to put yourself in their position. These young men who are fishermen, following Jesus Christ, called to keep fishing, not for their own benefit, but to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. 
Now it's Dad's Day, and uh, some of you dads love to fish. I can't quite connect with fishing, but uh, some people just absolutely love it. You either love it or hate it. I'm not in the love it category. But you understand what it is to fish. There's an adventure behind fishing, right? There's a skill, a technique, a touch, but there's also a lot of luck involved. Is it going to fire right today or not? There's a great adventure behind fishing. And here are these young men who are fishing as a career. Now, to them, that was a great privilege. Most of the people around the area of Judea were poor because of Roman oppression and overtaxation, right? They were oppressed in every way. But if you were a fisherman, that means that you had boats, you had assets, you had nets, right? You had docking rights, you had family, a family heritage of a trade that was very well respected, and frankly, you did pretty well. You weren't rich, but you did pretty well. You were in the top 10% of the socioeconomic environment at the, uh, at the time of Christ if you were a fisherman. There's a great adventure to that. Now, Jesus comes along. Jesus is a traveling preacher early in his ministry, but his preaching is so powerful that hundreds, maybe thousands of people in the northern area of Judea were following Jesus, crowding around him. Now, as he's traveling around, there's no PA system 2,000 years ago. Pachanga Ballroom is booked. There's nowhere to go. There's perhaps thousands of people following Jesus Christ, and you're just shouting, right? And so he has this great idea. You know what? The acoustics are great if you're on water. You can't keep a secret on water. For those of you who are uh, familiar with boating, if you're whispering on a boat down there uh, at the other side of the lake, you can hear it across the other side of the lake. There are no secrets. So Jesus says, hey, I'm going to use, uh, you know, in his day, modern technology, the acoustics of the sea, and I'm going to uh, get a boat, and I'm going to preach from a boat. That way everybody can hear. So he comes to Simon, who was later called Peter. Comes to Simon and says, hey, bud, I need your boat. Now, Jesus was pretty famous at the time, so it's a great privilege, right? Even though he'd been working all night long fishing and very frustrated because they didn't even catch a sardine, so he's pretty exasperated on one hand, but yet here is this very famous teacher preacher who's coming to him saying, hey, can I use your boat for a while? Goes out just offshore and preaches to the thousands of people that were there, but something miraculous happens. Jesus says to Peter and his two other boatsmen, let's go fishing again. Now, I'm sure that was an incredible bother to Peter because there's several things wrong with that. Number one, they fish at night. You fish at night. I don't know what fish do during the day. I hear they sleep. I don't know if fish sleep. I can't imagine a fish, you know, anyway. You just don't fish during the day. But Jesus says, hey, we're going to fish in the middle of the day. Peter says, that's not a good idea, right? Plus, we've been fishing all night and haven't even caught a sardine. And we're tired, right? You can just kind of feel his exasperation. We've been working all night. We cleaned our boat. We cleaned our net. We did you a favor. We're out here, you know, and by the way, the sermons during the time of Christ are not 32.5 minutes long like they are here today, uh, hours long potentially. So he is tired. And then Jesus asks him to do something ridiculous, to go fish in the middle of the day. But out of politeness, they say, okay, let's go. The first cast of the net, they bring in more fish than they can possibly bring up. A record haul. The nets were breaking. They had to bring their buddies from another boat to help bring in all the fish. They had fish up to their eyeballs. Some of you might think, well, that stinks, right? Well, it smells like money to them, right? It's a huge bonus. Fish everywhere. It was clearly a work of God. It was a miracle, an absolute miracle. It was so obviously miraculous that Simon bows down before Jesus and says, leave me, I am not worthy. Leave me, I am not worthy. This was someone special. This Jesus who has command over the seas and the fish of the sea, 
This Jesus who we heard about, they might have even heard him preaching. They might have heard about his miracles. But to see it firsthand, his first reaction is, Jesus, you've got to go. You and I cannot be together. You're clearly a man of, of, of God, and I am not. This is Peter's view of himself. You are the light of the world, and I, and I am a man of darkness. Now, if you've ever been in a, a dark room, if you go outside after being in a dark room, what do you do? You shut your eyes, hide your eyes, turn your face. It's, it's, it's stark when you're used to the darkness to have light shining upon you. That's exactly what happened with Peter in the boat. The light of God was shining in Peter's face and all Peter saw of himself was darkness. Maybe he saw that he's a man of quick temper. He had maybe normal lust, passions, desires of a young man and he just perceived himself as not being worthy of God so much so that he couldn't even be in the presence of this prophet, Jesus Christ. And here's what Jesus said to Simon, incredible. Jesus said to Simon, there is nothing to fear. Now hear the heart of God. Jesus is the son of God, the fullness of divinity, the full expression of God. This is his heart for Peter. This is his heart for us. You have nothing to fear. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. They pulled their boats up on the beach, left them. Now, by the way, they're leaving their boats, leaving their nets, leaving their family livelihood, and leaving these piles of fish that, by the way, were probably equal to roughly three months worth of a bonus check. Imagine the money that they left behind in that big pile of fish that they could have sold. And they followed Jesus. They followed Jesus. So I want you to imagine you go to work tomorrow. Boss hands you just randomly for no reason at all a three-month bonus check. And you decide, I'm not only going to say no to that bonus check. I'm going to leave my job, which, by the way, I'm doing pretty well at, provides for my family, as a whole generational business. I'm leaving it all to follow this preacher. That's the scene in Luke chapter five. So the question that's worth asking is why would they do that? Why would they do that? On its face, it just seems crazy. Why would they leave all of this to follow Jesus? Well, it's important to understand how Jesus was thought of at the time. He was not just a teacher. There were teachers everywhere, absolutely everywhere. In fact, there was a little bit of a competition with hundreds of teachers around the time of Jesus Christ. People wanted a voice. They wanted to speak up for something. They wanted to speak against Rome or speak against the corruption of, of the religious systems. They wanted to speak for a vision of what the future could be. So there were hundreds of teachers. Jesus was not like them. There were a few respected and elite rabbis. These are the ones who were leading whole schools of thought and whole schools of theology. They had memorized not just the first five books of the Bible, but they had memorized the entire Old Testament. They developed these yokes, these theological positions about life and the law and what God demands. They were very elite rabbis. Was Jesus an elite rabbi? Absolutely not. Nothing about the life and ministry of Jesus aligns with the way rabbis were at the time. Rabbis were very elite, very powerful, very rich, people of influence, and, and people were begging to follow them, having memorized so much of God's word and having to be the elite of the elite to follow a rabbi. That is not at all the way Jesus operated. He didn't operate in and among the elite of the elite. There was something very distinct and unique about Jesus, one of a kind. First of all, he was a worker of miracles, and, and everybody understood that. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he was, he was healing the sick and helping the, the mentally ill, and he was creating these miracles that draw attention to Jesus Christ in powerful ways. He spoke with authority, spoke with authority. Uh, he was tagged, labeled a prophet, because it wasn't just 
a normal teaching of the law. Here's what the law says. Here's what you must do. He was teaching as a prophet, boldly preaching something that felt new, felt like the heart of God passionately being proclaimed to culture. He was even tagged the son of God. You might remember at his baptism, this declaration goes out, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Not only that, he was thought to be perhaps this Messiah, this savior of the world that God had promised for so long. There was something very unique about Jesus that that got the attention of the common person. He wasn't the elite of the elite rabbis. He was a prophet on the streets. He was a prophet with the poor and with the sick. He was preaching with power and he was healing with power. And so he comes to these very common fishermen and he says this, paraphrased, hey guys, how about we do this together? Jesus says, I've been doing this alone. I've been preaching, I've been healing. I've been performing these miracles. I've been doing this alone. I want a team. So how about we do this together? Not catching fish, but captivating people for this new work that Jesus called the kingdom of heaven. How about we do that together? Now, knowing what they thought of Jesus, it's completely understandable why they would leave everything because he wasn't just a standard teacher, wasn't even an elite rabbi. He was a prophet, the son of God, potentially even the Messiah, the savior of the world. So when this Jesus comes across these teenagers and says, how about we do this together? They are dropping that net. They are dropping their family business. They are dropping that three-month bonus, and they are out. They are following Jesus. They were following Jesus. Because what's clear is the whole nation was eagerly awaiting a Messiah, a Savior, to deliver them from oppression and deliver them into freedom and into prosperity. And when that Son of God, Prophet, Savior, Messiah looks at you and says, hey, you want to do this together? They are gone. They are gone. Now look at what they also got to do. Right right after they were called to follow Christ as part of the 12 disciples, um, they go through Galilee, teaching in synagogues, proclaiming the good news again of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. As soon as Jesus calls them to follow him, they are on a roll. They are on a roll. They are doing all kinds of cool stuff. More and more followers of Jesus Christ. At one point, the highest number in the Bible of following Jesus Christ in any one area is upwards of 15,000 people in this tiny rural area of Galilee following Jesus Christ. He captivated, along with his disciples, the entire region following him, hearing his preaching, watching his miracles, flocking to him to be healed. You can imagine the 12 disciples, these Teenage boys who were once fishing days ago, they're now following the Son of God, Savior, Messiah, Jesus. Incredible story. Now, what was their motive? Was their motive altruistic? Was their motive to serve? The answer is definitively no. A big no. They were in it for themselves. Now, it's understandable, right? It's understandable because here is this allure. The Bible talks about a kingdom. The Bible talks about prosperity. The Bible talks about freedom. And and in their minds, they had a picture of what that looked like for them. We're with Jesus, the founder of this new kingdom. And so what are we going to get? Well, we're going to build a life. We're going to build a life of fame. I'm going to be famous. I'm with Jesus. Thousands of people. We're going to build a life of of fortune because this movement is going to result in some sick donations right? Or a whole governmental system where we're going to tax people and we are among the leads here, right? I'm going to be famous. I'm going to have fortune. I'm going to have power. 
Jesus talks about the authority of the kingdom of heaven and he's a master over the seas and a master over the sick. We're gonna have incredible power. We're gonna have God's blessing. We're with Jesus, the savior, the son of God. God will bless our lives. We are gonna be respected. We're not just gonna be common, you know, northerners, Galileans, you know, with a, with a little accent, right? We are with Jesus, respected, the savior of the world. I'm gonna be a person of influence. God's gonna use me to help change the world and shape the world into the kingdom of heaven. Look at this life that I am going to build at Jesus' side. This was their motive. We know that because we follow their life through the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're saying, ooh, I'm gonna be first. I'm gonna be at Jesus' right hand. And who's gonna be at Jesus' left hand? And I'm gonna be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. They're always getting it wrong in terms of what this kingdom means for them. They were in it for themselves. But if they paid attention to the teaching of Jesus from the very beginning, they would know that Jesus was calling them to a different kind of community. Jesus was not calling them into a community of power, into a community of wealth. He was calling them into a different kind of community. Jesus called them first to be a community of friends. He called them to be a community of friends. Now, if it's a purely earthly empire like every other kingdom was, it's not about a community of friends, it's a community of power, right? You've got the king, you've got the you know, princes, you've got the, the councils, you've got the generals, you have this hierarchy of authority and power and your job is to wield that authority and power in order to get yourself to the top. Jesus created a whole new kind of community because it's a whole new kind of kingdom. He created a community of friends. John 15, 15, Jesus says famously, I've, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything I've learned from my father, I've made known to you. Jesus says, we're in this together. We're in this as friends. And not only that, we're in this as partners. Jesus says, I'm giving you everything from God. I'm giving you all you need. And we're gonna do this together. We're gonna do this together. You're gonna know the master's business and we are in it together. It's a community of love, a community of friendship. See, church isn't a religious service. At least it's not supposed to be. Church is a community of friends. This is what church should look like and feel like. This is what our heart is for Rancho, that we will be a well-connected community of friends, that we'll you know, get here and be very comfortable gathering together and connecting with people, getting to know each other, helping each other, serving each other, being there for one another, that when we leave here, we'll be connected through the week, maybe in a, in a, in a life group, some kind of a small group, a serving team, just being there for each other, operating as friends. Friends from every background, every generation, every economic situation, every ethnicity, a community of people that are fiercely dedicated to each other, sharing our stories, getting to know each other, celebrating each other's successes, bearing each other's burdens when there are struggles, never having to pretend that everything is fine when it's not, and trusting that we have each other's backs no matter what, we're here for each other. That's the kind of community that Jesus came to create, a community of friends. He also came to create a community of love, a community of love. The community that Jesus created is marked by love. Anything that is not loving does not belong in the community that Jesus came to create. He came to bring the kingdom of heaven where our paradigm is about loving everyone everywhere. That's what we're all about befriending the outcast, healing the sick, embracing the sinner, helping the mentally ill, uh, serving the poor, all of it fueled by love. That's what Jesus did, that's what we need to do. A community of friends fueled by love. John 15, nine, Jesus says this, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you, now remain in my love. 
live in my love. The word there is abide, take up your residence in love, a community of friends dedicated to love. When Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment in all the Bible, Jesus rank him. He says, I just have one for you, right? The great commandment, Matthew 22, 37, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, all the prophets hang on these two commandments. We can't look at that enough. Jesus says, everything falls under the banner of love. We don't need to manage all the commandments of God's word because all we have to do is focus on love. If we focus on love, we will automatically obey all the other commandments. It's just the way it goes. Love God, love others. Be so thoroughly enthralled with the love of God for you that we live a life of love for others. It's a community of friendship. It's a community of love. But that community has a cause behind it. We don't just gather as friends and we don't just gather to love. There's a cause that that friendship and there's a cause that that love moves forward. And in one word, the cause of Christ is restoration. The cause of Christ is restoration, to restore what's broken, to restore what's decayed. This world is broken, right? I mean, pretty obvious. 2,000 years ago, it was more broken than it is today. It was brokener than it is today. I mean, we are so much better than we were 2,000 years ago. It's exciting to see how much better this world is getting fueled by love. 2,000 years ago, I mean, war and oppression and disease and, 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 and a lack of care and hierarchy and racism. It was just so common, so prevalent, misusing people, mistreating people. I mean, just a terrible, terrible environment uh, to live. It's a broken world. And Jesus came to restore that broken world. And everybody at the time of Christ understood how broken that world was. They understood they were a conquered people invaded by Rome. They were oppressed, they were poor, they were forgotten. They knew their government was utterly corrupt and violent, disgusting in how they mistreated people. And, and the conclusion that they knew was true about themselves and their entire nation is that we are lost. We are a people who are lost and we need to be restored. So Jesus came to bring first, I want you to hold on to your hats here. Everybody's going to tense. Everybody's just, <laughs> Jesus came to bring political restoration. Is he going to bring politics into church right now? He better, he better not go there. Jesus came to bring, to bring political restoration. The disciples understood what Jesus said when Jesus says, I am bringing a new kingdom the disciples absolutely understood, as they should have, what Jesus was talking about. Jesus was talking about political restoration. In fact, he was a political radical. This was a political revolution that Jesus was bringing. He wanted to fix the broken system of politics. Is our political system still broken today? <laughs> yeah, you're laughing hysterically. Of course, it is absolutely broken, totally broken. And Jesus came to fix broken politics. He came to fix broken politics. When Jesus said, I came to bring a new system, he says, I'm bringing a new political reality, a new kingdom, a new regime is coming. It's a radical political statement. Now keep in mind, radical political statements get crushed during the time of Christ. Almost 200 years before Jesus, there was what was called a Maccabean revolt uh, some of the, the people of Israel got together and they formed an army and they said, we are not going to be 
uh, subjugated by these forces anymore. We're not going to be oppressed. We're not going to be an invaded people. They formed an army, and they created a Maccabean revolt. Um, a couple of armies from the north and west gathered to crush the Maccabean revolt, and it was awful. I mean, the bloodshed was horrific. General Antiochus Epiphanes comes in, not only destroys the Maccabean revolt, but he takes a pig into the Jewish temple, holy of holies, sacrifices a pig, and declares himself to be God over Israel. It's called the abomination of desolation. If you know anything about Ham and Jews, that doesn't go over very well to sacrifice a pig in the holy of holies of the temple of God and declare yourself to be God. I mean, the statement could not have been more clear and stark and crushed the spirit of the Jews. When Jesus says, I come to bring a new kingdom, we have to know exactly what he meant. He meant that he is bringing a kingdom that will um, supersede other kingdoms. It was a threat. That's why Jesus was crucified by both the Roman governing authorities and the Hebrew governing authorities because Jesus was bringing a brand new politic. In fact, theologian N.T. Wright, very famous theologian, he says, in such a world, the world of Christ, to be non-political is to be totally irrelevant. Everything was about politics because all of life, especially at the time, was shaped by politics. It's not exactly as true today in the West as it was back then. Everything was about politics because everything was stained by the corruption of politics. So when Jesus brings in a whole new kingdom, there was a whole new political reality that Jesus was, was bringing to bear. The interesting thing about the, polit- the politics of Jesus is that it was totally nonviolent. It was a political movement unlike any other political movement. Other political movements were of this world. Other political movements were about power and wealth and even bloodshed, sword, violence, war, Jesus had nothing to do with any of it. He says, this world will be changed by love. This political movement is a politic of love. The world will be changed, not by the sword, not by war, not by power, but by love. This is a political movement of love. Jesus was about changing the reality of this world, every bit of it, by love. Now, because the political world is so entirely dysfunctional in our time, uh, we do not want to mix politics and religion. Oh, just don't do it. Just don't do it. We would much rather keep religion completely irrelevant. Let's go to church and talk about things that don't really matter in the real world because the real world out there is so messy, I just don't want any of it in my church, right? Don't bring it up. And I get that, right? I get that. Whenever I think about politics in the United States, I throw up in my mouth. I mean, it really is just disgusting out there. Every day is just this disgusting display of humanity. I I, uh, I am kind of big fans of the recent Southern Baptist Convention. I'm not a Southern Baptist, but they were all about confronting the political reality today and bringing love in its place. And and if we could be unafraid to talk about politics and, and knowing that, hey, the world is complicated. We don't have to agree on all kinds of stuff, right? We're not here to have to agree on everything. But what we can agree on is that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom that Jesus came to bring is a kingdom of love, and love wins. Love wins over our divisive politics. Love wins over racism. Love wins over sexism. Love wins over oppression, right? Love wins, and that's what Jesus came to bring. Love brings a political reality of victory to this world, and it really is extraordinary. Jesus came to bring political restoration. Jesus also came to bring religious restoration. 
And politics and religion are so easily corrupt, and that's why when Jesus came, he confronted both the corruption of politics and the corruption of religion that were completely intermixed at the time. Here's the reality about religion, and, I, and of course we use that in quotes around here. What we believe about God is our worldview. This is why we can call it religion, we can call it faith. Let's just call it faith. What we believe about God is our worldview. Our worldview is entirely founded on what we believe about God because what we believe about God is what we believe about uh, our ultimate authority. It's what we believe about why he created this world. It's what we believe about where he wants this world to go. So our worldview is shaped or at least founded entirely on what we believe about God. And then our life is an outflow of our worldview. So what we believe about God means everything. That's why Jesus in his teaching was so clear about God, who God is, revealing an image of God that was foreign to people. In fact, Jesus revealed a whole new image of God, that he is a loving, gracious, forgiving, kind, and generous heavenly father. This was not normal at the time. Normal religion says God is to be you know, coward before. He is angry and he's just waiting to judge you for every little misstep. And you must believe correctly and you must obey and you must be devout. Jesus says, no, God is a loving, gracious, forgiving, kind, and generous heavenly father. It's a whole new way to look at God. And if we have a whole new way of looking at God, then our worldview is changed. And then our whole life is changed. There's a cause that is bringing new life to this world. And yes, it, it is a political cause, but it's a cause of faith as well, to make this world more like the kingdom of heaven. And isn't that exactly what Jesus wants us to, to focus on? When the disciples came to Jesus saying, hey, what's the priority around here? Jesus says, well, here's what you're going to pray, right? Our Father in heaven, that defines who we are, that defines our community. It's a family of faith serving a loving heavenly Father. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is it. This is the community this is the cause. Our community is that we are brothers and sisters in a loving relationship with our Heavenly Father by grace alone, and our cause is to advance the cause of Christ, advance the kingdom of heaven on earth. God is a loving Father, and we are a loving family. That's our community. This family will establish the kingdom of God on earth. That's our cause. When Jesus called the 12 disciples to himself, he called them to a family, and he called them to a cause. Now, what they thought initially is that this is going to be an incredible thing for me, right? Over time, Jesus says, hey, listen, it's not about your fame. Your life's going to be about honoring others. This family of faith, the cause of Christ, is not going to be about your fortune. In fact, this kingdom is not even of this world. This is not about power. In fact, I'm calling you to die to yourself. This kingdom, this community, is not about getting blessings from God. It's about living your life to bless others. This community and this cause is not about gaining respect for yourself. Jesus would die in humiliation, as would many of the disciples. They're living for a greater cause than their own respect. It's not about their influence. It's about God's work in their life. Emptying themselves of themselves so that they could thoroughly embrace a community of love and live out a cause of love in this world. That's the community and the cause that Jesus called those 12 to. And that's the community and the cause that Jesus calls us to today. Now, I'm not going to assume that everybody here at church follows Jesus. There's a lot of reasons why people come to church. 
People come to church because it's tradition. Hey, let's go to church today. It's kind of what our family has done. Let's do that. Let's check off the box. You know, if there's a God out there, maybe we'll get some happy points from him today. It's just kind of a tradition, right? Family tradition. Some are here because you're being cool to a family member. You don't follow Jesus Christ, but maybe your wife does or your mom does, and so you're here with your wife or your mom or your dad, and you're just being cool, and that's awesome. You're very cool to be at church. Some of you don't necessarily follow Jesus. You follow Christianity. You are a Christian. That's your religious identification. It's almost like identifying a political party, but I'm telling you, identifying with a Christian party or religion is not the same as following Jesus. There's a very different thing there. Some of you are here at Rancho because you're intrigued by our message of grace. I have a lot of friends who go to Rancho who do not follow Jesus Christ. Show you how effective I am at uh, evangelism. A lot of friends who come to Rancho don't follow Jesus Christ, but they're exploring, and we get together, and we have chats about all kinds of stuff, science, philosophy, God's word, you name it, right? It's fun, tons of fun. A lot of people go to Rancho because they're intrigued by the gospel of grace. It doesn't look and feel like church to them. There's something, I guess, more profound in their mind. So the invitation today is the same invitation that Jesus gave to those 12 around that Sea of Galilee. Follow me. Jesus doesn't ask people to convert to a new religion. They were Jews. He didn't ask them to stop being Jews. He asked them to start following him. He doesn't ask us to convert to a new religion. He says, follow me. And, and to me, it's, it's very simple. When people say they're not real happy with Christianity, they don't want to be associated with Christianity, it's like, hey, fantastic, you don't have to be. You can follow Jesus. What? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Follow Jesus. Here's the community he's inviting you into, a community of friends and a community of love. You want that? I'll sign up for that any day. It makes perfect sense. Good. He's calling us to a cause, a cause to change the world by love. Loving one another in our homes, loving one another in our community, loving one another together, loving our neighbor, loving the stranger, loving people in need. You want to sign up for that? Yeah, I'll sign up for that. Sounds good. And do you know that Jesus modeled the way he led the way by giving his own life for this community and giving his own life for the cause? That he took the suffering and the sin and the shame of the world upon himself and died for it, once for all, died for it. And on the third day, rose again from the dead to give new and eternal life, not just to us, but to the whole world. You want to follow Jesus? Same invitation today as it was 2,000 years ago. So I'm going to close in prayer, and I'm going to ask you to follow Jesus. I'm not asking you to convert to a Christian religion. I'm not asking you to turn off your brain. I'm not asking you to, you know, be this devout, robotic adherer of whatever. I'm asking you to follow Jesus. What I'd like you to do as we pray, and I'm giving you permission to peek while we pray. Yes, it is legal. Is I would like you, if you're comfortable, to text in to me your response to the question. Feel free to pull out your phone during prayer. No problem. Pull out your phone during prayer and text to that number one of several things. Here's a couple of suggestions. If you want to follow Jesus, you're saying yes to that invitation for the first time today, I would love to know. Just text, I'm in. It goes right to my phone here. I'm the only one who sees it. Just text, I'm in. That means you've said yes to the invitation to follow Christ today. Maybe you have questions. There's just nine questions about Christianity, following Jesus. Just say, I have questions, and then we'll start a dialogue. 
You want to get connected. You know, you follow Jesus, but you're not really in this family of faith, this family of love, right? This family of friends. I want to get connected. Uh, just send that in and, and we'll get you connected. Might just want to tell me, hey, I'm good. How's the golf game? You know, whatever. Uh, just text me uh, any of those things or whatever's on your mind as we close in prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that you're a God of grace, of goodness, that you're a God who unconditionally gives love to us through Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior, he came to announce this great news that there is a heavenly Father who loves, who is gracious, who forgives that there is a cause of love to be received and there is love to be shared with this world and through love, the world will change. It is a revolution of love that will change people and families. It will change communities as we help those who are in need. We reach out to those who are forgotten. We befriend the outcast and the sinner and all those people that Jesus came to show love to. God, we want to not only be a part of that community of love, but we want to be a part of the cause of love. And so... To answer the invitation of Jesus, will you follow me? Today we say yes, we will follow you. We believe that you are the son of God. We believe that you came to die for the sins of the world, to take the suffering and the shame of the world upon yourself and to rise again in victory. We follow Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.